This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Quebec government and public sector workers have reached a tentative contract agreement. Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press, and Michelle can offer up an update. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Dave. Michelle, this one broke in the afternoon yesterday. What's the latest? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the biggest development with this one came on December 28th. That's when the, the province really did announce that it had reached a deal with a group of unions that we're going to just call the common front. That's what they're calling themselves. It's the easiest way to deal with us. Otherwise, we're into a lot of alphabet soup. I've been joking with the Montreal reporters about trying to keep all the various units <laughs> straight. Um, but the common front basically represents about 420,000 public sector workers. And it could be for education, healthcare, um public service, There's, it's a whole broad big mm-hmm, tent. Mm-hmm. The deal announced on, the, on December 28th, um, what we heard yesterday from the Common Front is that this deal is now one that they're willing to take to the membership for a vote. So we weren't sure which way they were going to go on this one. They were not offering a lot of comment, but it seems that they're satisfied enough with this deal to take it to the membership. And they're going to now spend the next month or so weighing in to see if they've got a deal. So, so there's quite a long timeline involved here, probably because of the number yeah, of is. unions and even even the, the notion of a timeline between December the 28th and January the 7th. Yes, there's holidays in between, but the, like the timeline is a little murky here. It is a bit, but what we what we do know is that they're now going to be going on until I believe it's February nineteenth is the deadline they have to secure these these votes from the membership. So you're right that that is a while, but it's also not totally unheard of. There were some other I, I can't remember specifically, but I've definitely seen longer ratification periods for a while when we have complex deals or multiple unions involved. So I think it makes a certain amount of sense given how it's it's. It's relatively straightforward from here. Now we, mm. we know there's going to be one, one, you know, five weeks or thereabouts. February nineteenth, I believe, is the date. Uh, they're going to be taking it around the province. There's a lot to unpack with the deal. It's a five-year deal, um, with the, the biggest item on it being a seventeen point four salary increase percentage-wise over that five-year period. Um, so there's a fair bit for everyone to weigh in on and, and, and assess, but there is now a timeline for getting it done. What about any potential job action during the course of those five weeks? Because there were some pretty significant mm. impacts during the course of those rotating strikes, especially especially in the health and education sector. Yeah, very much so. There, there have been some schools that have not been in session for, for a couple of months now because of all these various strikes, not all involving common front unions. It's worth noting that there are other unions outside the common front that are also in negotiations, and that's been part of this whole drama. But um, what, what's looking like for the next five weeks during the ratification period? Um, the, every indication from the union suggests that there will be no more strike action during that time. So um, I can't guarantee unequivocally, but everyone is saying, including unions, that further action like that seems very unlikely in the immediate term. Uh, if the deal doesn't land, though, then we're back to square one. Right. And we're very likely looking at more strikes. 
Michelle, let's pivot off of labor relations, although that's really been your file here for the better part of uh, oh, six yeah. months. It's, it's, it's your reports. Monday morning labor update with Michelle McQuig. That's, Pe- that's pe- people reach a lot of deals on Sundays. That's just the way that it goes, Michelle. You know, a day, oh. day of rest, except in the I labor industry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Especially when they land at like 11.50 at night. This one did not, the, but yeah. This one definitely was a little bit more at a reasonable hour, thankfully. It was. Okay, Michelle, let's uh, pivot to something that I would consider to be positive news, not to throw too much of an editorial slant on this. The city of Calgary has been converting office space into residential housing, and it looks like that's starting to bear a little bit of fruit. So what's some of the context around this story out of Calgary? Sure. So I I have to put in a plug for my colleague Amanda Stevenson, who did Mm -hmm. a great story on this. It's really worth reading. And she's, if you're interested in energy sector matters, she's our oil and gas reporter, and it's always worth a read. She's, Amanda's great. Anyway, Um, The context here was that, if you recall, Calgary wound up with a lot of vacant office space. It was a combination of the pandemic, but mostly the energy sector collapsed. Remember, the oil prices tanked, energy companies were laying people off left and right. And as a result, the downtown vacancy rate for office space was up around like 30% 30 or a bit more. Wow. Really, really high. Um, So the the city decided to launch an interesting project that would offer subsidies, 75 uh, 75 bucks per square foot to any office building owner who was prepared to convert some of this space into residential units. They weren't sure how it was going to go. They set a funding cap of about $253 million for this project, so significant price tag for a municipality. And... Lo and behold, it was a huge success. They've attracted 13 projects already. They've hit their cap, their their funding caps. They've had to pause it for a moment. There's four more projects that have also been approved and that are waiting to start. Some of these projects are well underway and are set to open soon. And it's been a huge success. It is now being touted as a bit of a model for other cities to to possibly look at. Michelle, I know that some of this is in flux. There's some fluidity to the numbers, but how much housing are they hoping to create? Maybe even if you want to specify the Cornerstone building, which is sort of the current sort of feature project that looks like it's going to get its doors open first. Yeah, that's that's going to be a building, uh, a 10-story office building, and I believe it's going to be about 112 units in said building. Uh, The goal was to convert about 6 million square feet of office space into residential units through this project. And uh, as, as, as we just went through, they, they're, they seem to be well on pace to do exactly that. Uh, hard to say until the projects are totally built to get a sense of how it's working. Um, these kinds of projects are not totally straightforward. They're, they're, Amanda gets into No, they're the difficult. Yeah, around. they're very difficult. Yeah, they are. They're, they're quite tricky. But as a lot of people have pointed out, they're still cheaper than building entirely fresh from the ground up. Even if you're into converting, you know, rooms that don't necessarily have windows or trying to deal with funkily placed elevators or, or unusual floor plan configurations or whatnot. Um, all of that is still cheap. <laughs> yeah. plumbing, pl- pl- plumbing is tricky because sometimes uh, there's only one or two bathrooms on an office floor. So sometimes uh, <laughs> sometimes plumbing gets a little bit wild. But Michelle, yeah. I, like th- I like that you use the word sort of blueprint there or, or sort of something that can be moved forward as a template because this is something yeah. that, that Dave Brown Consulting has been all over for the better part of four years. <laughs> that if, if, if there are going to be a situation where a city is experiencing 15, 20, 25% uh, office vacancy, and that's certainly occurring in places around southern Ontario, around Metro Vancouver, because Absolutely. the... the, the in Montreal. Tr- Montreal, in, the, uh, yeah. Halifax, the trend... Yeah, all over the all over Canada, really. The, the, the trend of in-office work certainly to a degree <laughs> is coming back, but I don't think you're going to see the rush 
to commercial office space. And if everyone wants to acknowledge that there's a housing crisis going on, use existing infrastructure, especially in oftentimes uh, desirable places, to go put some housing up. Yeah, that's it. I mean, office places are right downtown. So yeah, they are quite desirable. They're often really close to transit, which is very attractive for people. Um, <clears throat> and of course, they have the 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 added bonus of potentially revitalizing some downtown areas that might have yeah, into some yeah. neglect over time. So yeah, like it, I I'll tell you what I'll tell the the listeners what I told you last night is I thought of you immediately when I saw this story because I know you've been touting this idea for a while, but here it is working quite well. And as you said, Dave, the vacancy rates in other cities, there Amanda mentioned several in in the story. They're not as high as the 30% plus that Calgary was facing, but we're still talking about north of 15% and sometimes even into 20% in many places. So yeah, I, there, there are lots of indications that this is a model that other cities might want to take a look at. And, and now Calgary's got a bit of, of data to prove how effective it can can start out yeah. being anyway. Again, the, the buildings aren't up, people are not yet moved in. Uh, but so far, this is definitely, uh, I, th I don't think you were wrong to call it a good news story at the outset of this one. And you're right, Amanda Stevenson did a fantastic job with her article on this one, but CTV News Calgary also did a really good video story on this as well, showing some of the development. The, the, the apartments and condos look really, really nice, and there's a component cool. here where some of it is going to be affordable housing as well, sold at 20% below market rate. So it's it's not just, oh, here's a bunch of hoity-toity condos for rich people in downtown Calgary. There is a component of affordability as well to the story. So like, like all cool. of those pieces together are what make it a good news story in my mind. Whether or not it serves as that long-term blueprint, it's as I've said before, the housing crisis is going to require spaghetti at the wall and a lot of spaghetti at yeah. the wall. Absolutely, but this is, is definitely one solution that seems obvious enough. Um, but it's interesting to see how little it's been taken up. Calgary's program is actually the first of its kind in North America. So mm -hmm. this is it, it still is pretty well an untried system at this stage. So it's an interesting one to take a look at. And, and so far, so good. Well, well done by the city of Calgary. Michelle, well done by you. Thank you for all the work you, you do over the weekend. Enjoy a couple days off. Sounds great. See you Friday, Dave. That's Michelle McQuig, weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up next, Usable Net has released its annual report on digital accessibility lawsuits in the United States. Denny Boudreau dives into some of the data. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.